Upsla Podcast Episode 1, The No Silver Bullets Workshop. Welcome to the Upsla Podcast. The Upsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Upsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. The Upsla Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and Dim Sum Thinking. I am Markus Völter, your host for this episode. In this episode, we're going to talk about a workshop called No Silver Bullet, a retrospective on the essence and accidents of software engineering. On the phone is Dennis Mankel, Steve Fraser and Bill Opdyke, the organizers of the workshop. Why don't you three guys introduce yourself briefly to the listeners of the Upsla podcast? And maybe, I don't know, Bill, you start? Yeah, this is Bill Updike, and actually I've been involved in Upsla going all the way back to uh, Upsla 89 when I was uh, a graduate student at the time um, under Ralph Johnson at the University of Illinois. <clears throat> and I've been attending most of the Upslas. I think I've missed maybe two or three since then, but I've been at most of them. And in fact, have been actively involved for probably about the last 10 or 12 years in various workshops, a number of which have been co-organized with Steve Frazier and Dennis Mansell. Um, I've really enjoyed the workshops. In fact, in a number of cases, I think the, the high point for the conference has been the uh, one or two days I've been involved in workshops. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of professionally, I worked for about uh, nearly 20 years at Bell Labs, taught in academia for several years, and for the last year I've been working at Motorola. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dennis Mansell. I've been with Western Electric, AT&T, Lucent Technologies, and now Alcatel Lucent for 26 years. Uh, I'm been very interested in software engineering problems and, you know, software development in the large. Uh, I've been particularly interested in the last uh, well, five or six years in, in two aspects. One is the use of use cases for requirements modeling, mm -hmm. and the second being uh, dealing with legacy software development. Since we're always... Uh, uh, in, in the telecom world, we're building systems that mm. have to interact with things that are already in existence. Yep. Uh, we never really get to, to build anything from scratch. Therefore, um, there, there's always a blending of, of old code and new code, in, and uh, you know there are all kinds of promises that made out there for uh, uh, what tools and everything can help you do re-engineering. So, you know, Silver Bullet is kind of a a, a natural uh, question for me to take on either either positively or skeptically. Okay, and number three? Hi, I'm Steve Fraser, and uh, I've also shared with Bill uh, the first Upsala I went to was back in New Orleans in 89, and I've attended every Upsala since then. And since uh, 1994 in Portland, I've had panels every year. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's two or three, and I've also been involved with Dennis and... Uh, Bill on uh, on the organizational workshops, often in parallel to uh, panels that I proposed. And uh, uh, professionally, I've been uh, in the field now over 20 years. And uh, like Dennis, I've always been interested in the soft issues, the people issues, the non-technical issues of uh, software in the large. And having worked at Nortel Networks, or precursor to that was Bell Northern Research, and then uh, more recently I'm at Qualcomm. And 
starting in July, I'll be taking up a position at uh, Cisco Systems in the Bay Area. So the idea for uh, panels is, to me, often driven by, uh, you know, sort of like it's a chance for looking back at some special event or paper. And this year, uh, I remember that it's been 20 years since I did my PhD, and the week I did my PhD was the week that uh, No Silver Bullet uh, <laughs> uh, Fred's paper came out. And I thought, 20 years, hey, wow, that's a, that's a great excuse to see if maybe we can get Fred and a few other folks together for a panel. And then by extension, when I was talking with Dennis and Bill, we said, hey, what about a great idea for a, for a workshop as well? And yep. uh, that's how things have sort of developed. So we're, we're talking actually about two things here. One is the No Silver Bullet workshop, and the other thing is, is the panel. So um, before we discuss these two sessions specifically, do you want to give us a little background of where the name comes from? I think most people are aware of this No Silver Bullet thing, but can you give us a little bit of the background, what it is specifically, what was specifically meant by this No Silver Bullet statement? You know, going back to the uh, to Brooks' uh, paper that he wrote, basically the notion was that uh, it had been the experience, and this is going back again to the mid to late 1980s when the paper was published. Um, you know, experience had been that uh, software developments, you know, typically the costs were overrunning estimates considerably, in some cases by an order of magnitude. And, you know, while certain advances had been able to be achieved in terms of productivity and the hardware realm and various kinds of cost reductions, that trying to reduce software development costs was a nagging problem and it was becoming an increasing importance as companies were, you know, more and more dependent upon software and in many ways to find their business in terms of the software either that they produced or that they used to manage their enterprise. And what happened was that these costs were so high and the quality problems were, were very significant that many people were, you know, frantically looking for essentially some sort of a silver bullet. And it went back to the notion of if you think of these high software development costs as being the werewolf, wouldn't it be nice if you could somehow have this silver bullet that would slay the werewolf and would allow us to be able to better contain and handle software development costs? Brooks mm -hmm. in his paper takes on the question of, are there real silver bullets out there? Are there some technologies that can, can give you an order of magnitude improvement in software development productivity? And mm -hmm. his conclusion, and this is, you know, what, 1986, 1987, is basically no. None of the none of the technologies that uh, were being proposed at the time, or tools, or, or methods, would really give you an order of magnitude uh, improvement. But he said that there were some, uh, and he, he listed four uh, promising areas of attack mm -hmm. on the essential complexity of software development. And he, he was pointing at things like the build versus buy, and and uh, other kinds of issues like that. And I, I think you know those of us organizing this workshop are definitely in agreement that these uh, promising approaches are are actually a pretty good idea and probably a better thing than trying to go look for some magic technology that can solve the problem for you. So, were there any specific technologies on the horizon back then? I took a look back at the article that. Um that Brooks had written, um, and he noted what he called the hopes for the silver, and these were some of the concerns. Now, mind you, this is the mid to late 1980s. This is a time when there had been a considerable amount of hype behind AI and expert systems. Mm -hmm. So some of the hopes and the areas he had concerns on were things like ADA, uh, artificial intelligence, expert systems, automatic programming, 
There were a couple of others that he noted, but I'll end with maybe the most relevant one for oops, the graphical programming, program verification, mm-hmm. environments and tools, workstations, and finally he talks also about object-oriented programming. Mm-hmm. And basically what he notes is that there are, in each of those cases, there were reasons to be suspect that ultimately these technologies were going to achieve the kind of order of magnitude benefits that people were looking for from the silver bullet. And one of the major reasons is, he notes elsewhere in the paper about the difference between the accidental complexities and the essential complexities. And many of these proposals that people had were addressing essentially accidental complexities. Mm -hmm. The real benefits were going to come out of dealing with the essence. Mm It's probably fair to say that the technologies he, he mentioned or he looked at, they certainly weren't a silver bullet. They may not have been the silver bullet, but uh, some of them actually turned out to produce some, some, some reasonable benefits. I mean, right. you could, well, certainly uh, all say that object-oriented uh, programming you know, really did make a positive benefit to reduction of uh, system complexity. Sure, sure, but it wasn't a factor of 10 or something. No. So um, the purpose of the workshop then is, um, what is it? Is it to, to discuss whether there, there are silver bullets today on the horizon or is it, I mean, the subtitle of the workshop is a retrospective on the essence and accidents of software engineering. So what's the, what's the mission of the workshop? Well, you know, with workshops, it's, it's sometimes the journey more than the destination. Mm-hmm. And I think that finding and getting people together to talk about this topic and to talk about you know, where we've been and where we're going in itself will be a reasonable destination in quote. I mean, you, you, this is one of those things that I, I'm afraid to use the, uh, the, the metaphor build and they will come. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I really do want, I, I, I personally want to share experiences and, and you know, that, that's, you know, I'm not looking for any silver bullet to come out of the, the workshop, but it would be of nice course. to get some pointers about what people feel uh, feel has worked and what isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think like, uh, you know, Dennis had noted, uh, it's up on our, our currently our workshop's website there, that, you know, even in the issue about people putting together position papers, what are some of the discussion questions that we're thinking about? So I think we'll be addressing some of those issues. Uh, things like, um, you know, was the original No Silver Bullet article optimistic, pessimistic, or realistic? So, mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we have the benefit now of 20 years since then to be able to look back and say, okay, is that in fact the case? Um, do, in fact, the promising attacks, the things that um, that Brooks noted are the real opportunity areas, um, has, in fact, some success been, in, in able, been achieved by being able to address some of those? Or, in fact, have those been issues in areas which have been hard for any particular tool or technique to address? You know, or, or maybe specifically related to the object earned areas. I look at his section. You know, he, he saw some concerns about it not achieving the silver bullet, but he certainly noted in his article that he holds out more hope for object-oriented programming than a number of the other technical fads that mm-hmm. were proposed at the time. Mm-hmm. And object-oriented programming itself, sort of the definition of it and, and the range of topics covered at Uppsala, has also sort of ver- varied over the last 20 years. So I think an interesting issue will be to look at how you know, the notion of object orientation and the scope has changed in the last couple decades to look a bit at, okay, when you look at object orientation today and the range of issues does it, in fact, address some of the concerns that Brooks noted and maybe have more of a promise than maybe object orientation had 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. I'm also hoping that we'll have a few people that will come in and tell us how uh, open source development is the silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. Because they, they, they may be right, right? They may say, oh, well, productivity isn't as important as throughput. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, ha- you know, being able to build on top of the work of others, as, as Brooks noted, uh, reusing existing software can be a, po- a, a really positive way of, uh, of uh, making progress on the conceptual essence. So, hey, open source. There might also be there might also be something about discipline and how people apply their practices to uh, right. using open source. I mean, it, it's I'm getting back to the soft issues now, yep. but uh, uh, it, it's not necessarily just about the technology. It's about how people are actually, you know, collaborate and and build software to meet you know our needs. I, I think that's yeah. probably a good a good a good statement, a good candidate that the that the real productivity improvements aren't technology wise, but rather, as you say, discipline, processes, or or best practices. And I, I think also getting back to the question you had there, Marcus. When I look at what I'd like to see come out of the workshop after the day, I think of okay. Who are the people that we would hope would be at the workshop and expect that would be there? And it's probably going to be a mixture of people who are, um, you know, in the academic environment, whether they're faculty members or graduate students, mm-hmm. as well as a number of people in industry. I suspect a topic like this might be particularly attractive to the people in industry, but I think it could be a, a very attractive both ways. I know from my own experiences that when I first was, you know, when I read um, Fred's uh, paper back two decades ago. Of all the stuff I've read, that his paper is one of, I'd say, probably the top five in terms of being the most influential papers that I've read that influenced my professional and academic future. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'd like to think that a number of the things in the object-oriented refactoring area helped to address some of the concerns that he viewed as being some of the, you know, the, some of the promising attacks. And um, I certainly felt being in industry at the time that he really captured a lot of concerns people in industry had. So what I expect would come out of here is some people from the academic side will maybe see a little different view on things. If they're looking for topics that they want to do research on, it may suggest some ideas. Uh, if they think they have something that addresses some of these key areas, they may have a way of being able to describe them more effectively to increase the likelihood that their ideas will be adopted in industry. And from the industry side, there's going to inevitably be people who are so have their heads so focused on getting near-term products out the door that they haven't really had the opportunity to sit back and reflect on, look, we're getting stuff done, but we could be doing it better. How might we do it better? Hopefully a workshop like this might be able to help them. So does any does any one of you have any ideas of what silver bullets could be or what are potential candidates? I think we're all of the opinion that we're not going to find the silver. Okay. <laughs> I suspected that. <laughs> no, no, my, go ahead. That won't stop that won't stop many people from looking, of course. Silver tends to have that sort of attraction. Yeah. I think it's also the case that each each of the three of us have been in environments where <clears throat> we've been looking at advanced technologies and process improvement techniques and are trying to find ways in which you know our particular organizations can better leverage um, these advances and be able to be more productive. And I think we probably would all agree that it's important to have a vision, but generally speaking, um, change will tend to happen more incrementally. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that part of what Brooks did was he really painted some good contrasts and a good vision. So while we won't necessarily see the revolutionary change, I think we will be able to see some evolutionary changes. So hopefully in the discussions, we'll see ways in which maybe we could see how organizations could achieve some incremental improvements while maybe moving towards something that would be even more significant. Do you think the uh, the real challenges today are in essential complexity or in the accidental complexities? It's still in the essential complexity that the biggest challenges are. 
I mean, you're you're always going to be nagged by um, uh, the problems of you've chosen the wrong architecture, you've chosen the wrong tool set, you're you know you're 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 wasting a lot of time and doing something that really isn't that hard. Mm-hmm. But I think with a lot of professional software developers, it really is, you know, hey, you're stuck trying to do a a difficult problem. And you're saying, well, okay, is there some way that I can organize my work, uh, you know, being being, uh, 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 using a, a... a complex software tool, using an agile development approach, using a reuse program or something like that in order to, to try to file down that, uh, that mountain of software complexity that you're trying to do. Because I, I was wondering, um, in, in many projects, typical web applications or, or business applications, the essential complexity is usually not that great. And people just get hung up about using the newest hype technology and, and, and basically just get problems using using the newest of the newest stuff. So I wonder whether this is maybe different in this kind of business or web application development compared to the area you're from, which is more intrinsically complex software, which is the, the communications world. Actually, this brings up a whole set of issues that we've discussed in a previous workshop called discovery costs, mm-hmm. and that, and that is a um, oh god. Well, we did a uh, Bill, you and I did a paper on this for Bell Labs Technical Journal back about seven years ago. Right. And we, we were exploring the fact that there's a lot of cost in software development that is learning the things that you need to learn in order to do the job that you have to do. Yep. Um, is, is that, a, is that um, an essential uh, cost or is that an accidental cost? Well, it's a little of both. You know, some of it is that, well, you've chosen to do this particular project with this inexperienced team instead of the people who've worked on that same project uh, for the past four years. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's going to, you know, they're going to have a learning curve. However, you may be doing this for a strategic reason, like, uh, you know, that, you know, that the four people who uh, have been working on this thing over, over the, la- the last 15 years or so, that they're going to retire. Yep. So you'd better have some folks in place. That becomes an essential cost. Mm-hmm. So will Fred be part of the workshop or part of the panel? He will be part of the panel. Cool. He will also be giving an invited keynote uh, uh, talk at, at Uppsala this, uh, this fall in Montreal. Oh, very nice. But uh, I don't think that he's not going to be able to make it for the workshop. Okay. So assuming somebody is listening to this podcast and thinking about going to Uppsala and more specifically about coming to your workshop, what's, what, what should people expect? Why should they come? What's the benefits you have been taking uh, from, from past workshops at Uppsala? You get some perspectives on how other people think about interesting problems. Right. In other workshops that I've been involved with, I've come to the workshop and I've said, you know, I have... Uh, particularly good ideas on how this should work. And I've always confronted with people who have totally different experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in a totally different part of the industry. They're coming from an academic position. Um, they've had some experiences different from mine. And I learned something out of that. I come out of the, the workshop and I say, you know, I have some questions that I'm going to go explore some more. And in, in this case, where there's a panel session associated with the workshop, then I'll always have some good questions to ask at the panel session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and I think it's also true that when people come to a, a conference like this, there are different um, 
ways in which people tend to learn. And uh, maybe you shared this with me one time, Dennis, when it came to training material. There are some people who learn by reading, and there are some people who learn by hearing, and there are some people who learn by doing. And there's a variety of ways in which people absorb information and can work with it. And I happen to feel that you know, there's certainly lots of opportunities for people who come to Uppsala to be able to attend and listen to a number of speakers, whether it's various paper presentations or whether it's uh, the panels and stuff like that. But generally in those environments, the people in the audience don't typically get quite as involved in it, except maybe to ask some questions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the big things you get with a workshop is it's a real opportunity for people to be able to actively get involved, that they can share from some of their experiences, learn from each other. Um, you know, I tend to find these environments to be great opportunities not only to get up on some technology and exposed to new ideas, but I find it very energizing. I'm usually able to do some informal networking with people, so I develop mm-hmm. some new contacts yeah. that I didn't have before. To me, there's a lot of benefits that can come out of these experiences. Mm-hmm. I also think it's uh, the greatest thing is that you get some of the best minds in the industry and, and the community uh, coming together at Uppsala, and what uh, we found in the past is that you know people get somewhat turned off, perhaps by objects. They think, you know, what is this object stuff? It's all, it's, it's you know, we're beyond that. Well, it really is the place for people to gather to discuss all aspects of software. And yeah, the, wasn't there this 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 Uppsala renaming context uh, last year or the year before? Yeah, I'm on the conference committee, and uh, I, I I know that. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that, but the thing is that it has a certain brand value, yeah. and if we change the name, then there are all sorts of other yeah. issues. I think one idea was 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 of calling it just Psla, Psla, or Pupsla, <laughs> or you know, like putting a P in front of it for for patterns. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So various things were looked at, and I think that basically they want to move away from it meaning anything other than it's a conference on software, right? Yeah, and and computing. And, yep. uh, you know, IBM used to mean international business machines, but yeah. I think that, <laughs> you know, like people go for the, the letter, the letter is not for the, uh, yeah. for the, the abbreviation or the, uh, the anagram. I'm, 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 I'm yep. stretching and maybe don't want to use that, but, uh, I really think it's about meeting the people and yeah. sharing ideas and, uh, sure. and learning. Okay. Thanks for being on the, on the podcast. Great. Take care. See you later. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Uppsala Podcast. If you want to know more about the Uppsala Conference or if you want to get additional Uppsala Podcast episodes, visit the conference website at uppsala.org. This episode, as well as all the other episodes of the Uppsala Podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>